0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Facebook COVID-19 Q&A Live um, my name is Kanika Sadasivan. I am the Director of Communications at Texas Nurses Association, and we have Serena Bumpus, our Director of Practice.
1: Hi, everyone. How are you? I hope you're doing well today. Um, <clears throat> this afternoon, we wanted to take just a few minutes uh, to um, remember this um, monumental day that occurred 19 years ago. It's hard to believe that um, 19 years ago was when um, the World Trade Center was, was attacked and it feels just like yesterday. I can remember exactly where I was, what I was doing and, and how I felt at that time. And um, it's, it's a day of, of reflection for sure. I think for all of us who were witness to that um, 19 years ago. We do want to just take a few minutes to recognize and remember the nurses who, um, who died on 9-11. We have Tori Belorshi, she was 69 years old and a retired nurse and passenger who was aboard the United Airlines Flight 175. Lydia Bravo, she was 50, an occupational health nurse at Marsh and McLennan companies. Ronald Buca was 47, he was a fire marshal for the New York City Fire Department. Greg Buck, 37, firefighter with the New York City Fire Department at Engine Company 201. Christine Egan, 55, a community health nurse visiting from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Carol Fleizek, 40 years old, a medical software marketing manager and passenger aboard American Airlines Flight 11. Deborah Lynn Fisher Gibbon, 43, and Senior Vice President at Aon Corporation. Jeffrey Guja, 47 years old, Lieutenant with the New York City Fire Department, Battalion 43. Stephanie Hutzko, 44, a police officer with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey Police Departments. Kathy Mazza, 46, and a Captain with the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey Police Department and Commanding Officer at the Port Authority Police Training Academy. Michael Mullen, 34, Firefighter, New York City Fire Department, Ladder Company, 12. and i think as we as we reflect on 911 i know today i've found myself reflecting on on just the events that that occurred that day in, in, in where we are today in present time and you know we're we're not necessarily we're dealing with a different kind of terrorist if you will um, with covid-19 and um, the impact that it's had on all of us in, in various ways. Um, you know, as of August, while these numbers haven't necessarily been accurately tracked, um, the est- we've estimated that over 1,000 frontline healthcare workers um, have died in the United States due to COVID-19. Many of us could speculate <clears throat> the reasons why that's occurred. And um, I think many would attribute it to some of our challenges that we've had with personal protective equipment in our healthcare facilities. And um, in, in the fact that we're reusing or we've run out and um, the, the supply and demand has been less than stellar in, in many of our areas. Um, back in July, actually excuse me, back in March, Uh, the American Nurses Association conducted a survey of of nurses across the United States and um, to inquire about shortages um, at the beginning of the pandemic and and, and how nurses felt about it and if they felt safe and if they were reusing PPE. And, um, you know, that that survey um, concluded, you know, when nurses were required to use their N95 masks, 62% of them Um, When those results came back, when the results were finalized in May, um, 62% of nurses said that they were being asked to reuse their N95 masks. Um, 43% of those who responded um, said they were reusing their masks for more than five days. 59% said they felt unsafe with reusing masks. And 53% said that they felt unsafe even though their organizations um, had decontamination processes in place. And um, when the survey, survey was done again, uh, back in August, and as those results were finalized, um, you can see that the, uh, the, the number of nurses who responded and um, the, re- the responses to those questions increased. And so we were still being asked to reuse N95 masks. We're still reusing those masks for greater than five days. Um, we still feel unsafe reusing our masks, and even with decontamination processes in place, um, there's there's still a a sense of uneasiness. And um, here at Texas Nurses Association, as well as the American Nurses Association, we are um, working to support legislation that would increase the national stockpile, that would increase the the amount of PPE available to our facilities because while, um, while reusing masks and decontamination processes are better than nothing, um, this should not be how we continue to move forward um, with a pandemic or not. And, and so we, we have to improve the, um, the amount of protection that we do have for our frontline healthcare workers. Um, the american nurses association has um, put out a call for the full use of the defense production act to increase the domestic production of personal protective equipment um, for the passage of the medical supply chain emergency act of 2020 as well as expanded investment in testing and the public health infrastructure texas nurses association at the state level is also working um, to support the expansion of testing and the public health infrastructure, as well as um, looking at what we can do to increase that medical supply chain here in Texas for Texas nurses as well. And so we want you to know that um, that that is something that we um, have paid a lot of attention to. And um, now that we are six months in to this pandemic, uh, you know, it's time to ensure that, that the solution that's been created is truly just temporary and that we work towards getting back to the standard of care that, um, we were doing before COVID-19 hit the United States. Um, and Kanika, I will turn it over to you now to talk a little bit about vaccines.
0: Thank yeah, you. Um... So one big thing that we really want nurses to push right now is getting flu vaccines. Um, We know that maybe people believe that their risk is lower because they're not going out as much, um, which is true, but there is still some risk. Um, What happened in the early spring is that the last flu season was actually pretty devastating. Um, It led to a lot of those shortages we saw in PPE early on. Um, Nurses were already running short on PPE because of the flu season. Um, so we wanna try and avoid that happening again. We also want want to avoid um, flu hospitalizations taking resources away from COVID patients essentially. Um, and we have a vaccine for the flu and we know that it's um, somewhat effective. Uh, there is that slight chance of, um, you know, they have to predict which flu strain is gonna be most um, common this year. And that's how they develop the vaccine. So there is still kind of a, um, a slight risk that Uh, It might not protect against every strain, but it still does reduce the severity of the flu if you catch a different strain. Um, So please encourage all of your patients to get their flu shots. Um, We're encouraging all of our staff to get flu shots, and we will be starting a campaign, um, hand in hand with ANA nationwide campaign to get flu shots out. Um, And uh, the other part was uh, COVID vaccines. Um, so we have, you know, some people have been saying that there might be a COVID vaccine by November. Um, the CDC did hold a call uh, with uh, health administrators um, in different states to tell them to get prepared for a possible early November distribution. Um, but we still do not have um, final results from any of the phase three trials. So. It isn't um, extremely likely that that's going to happen in November because once the trials are over, we still have to analyze the data and we still have to figure out the manufacturing process. Um, there was kind of a push early on um, in that there, there were factories that were built or purposed for vaccine production. Um, so we know that those facilities are standing by, production could happen pretty rapidly, but uh, we'd still have to figure out distribution networks and all of that. And so um, November, is a possibility, but it might not be um, you know, very likely to happen in November. And so uh, there's about you know, a couple vaccines that are in phase three trials right now, um, and they all have different mechanisms. And so um, I think that's also going to inform how they're delivered. Um, we might need to get more than one shot, so it might be one shot and then two months later you have to get the second shot, um, similar to some other vaccines that are already in use. Um, and so that's one thing to keep an eye out for. Um, you know, we're gonna provide you with news as we have it and with information, um, as well as keeping an eye on what ANA recommends once we do have more information, once the vaccine is readily available to everybody. Um, but right now we're really, really pushing the flu vaccine. We just wanna make sure that everyone is protected so that that's one less thing that nurses have to worry about um, as we, you know, as we see COVID continue to affect the community. Um, We had a question, and uh, let's see, how has the pandemic affected hospital staffing? I heard elective procedures have been canceled and are nurses being asked to work in more acute areas?
1: I think that's a great question. And um, in the height of our peak, which was in late June, most of July, early August, Uh, you know, we, the areas that were hardest hit were asked to, um, to stop their elective procedures and only do procedures that were medically necessary. Um, Our, our hospitals were, were pretty full and um, they were, you know, not only seeing patients who needed to be cared for on a regular basis, but then COVID added an additional layer of complexity. Um, That did stress staffing quite a bit. Um, Some areas were, um, needed to bring in travelers or depend on the the state's STAR program to bring additional um, staff into their facilities so they could offset um, that shortage. As we all know, hospitals don't um, necessarily staff for a full census because hospitals aren't on a normal day always full. So, um, there there needed to be some, some additional accommodations there to ensure that we had the right number of nurses taking care of patients. Um, volumes from a, you know, the, the volume of COVID patients being hospitalized has decreased um, over time. And, and while we're still seeing patients who've been diagnosed with COVID come into the hospital, we're not um, feeling as overwhelmed per se as we were um, in that June, July August timeframe. So, um, you know, it's business as usual. I would say, no, that's not the case <laughs> in this time. Um, but uh, to say that maybe things have slowed down just a little bit, I would say so. However, um, you know, we are now preparing for flu season. Flu season is always a busy time of the year in the hospital setting. And, um, and now you add COVID on top of that. And um, we're not really sure what to expect. And so, you know, I think it's important that as, as nurses, we we definitely take care of ourselves, um, and that our nurse leaders take care of themselves. And um, I'm sure that everyone is is starting to look ahead at, at what what will this look like, um, you know, knowing that usually during flu season is when our hospitals are full and um, are busy, and and how how are we going to manage this extra influx of patients? Um, just in order to um, continue to, to run our normal day-to-day operations. So um, we still have um, staffing agencies that, as I understand it, who have been contracted with the state that are still available. Many of them are actually still working in some of the hospitals that they were working in um when they started back in june and july and um, you know i think our healthcare facilities have done a great job in in trying to ensure that um, they do have the right number of nurses at the bedside and if they don't they've got contingency staffing plans in place uh, to redeploy staff to different areas of the hospital um, to help offset
0: some of those um, staffing challenges Um, we also had a question whether this is being recorded. Yes, it is. This will stay on Facebook. So if you just come back to Texas Nurses Association's Facebook page, um, you know, later on to rewatch it, you can just click on the videos tab and it'll be there. Um, some other updates, uh, you know, the federal HHS is really urging um, people to report COVID 19 data um, and fill out 100% of the fields. Um, You know, making sure that that data gets up to to the federal level, especially um, psychiatric facilities are now being required to report as well. Um, So that's one thing that they're really urging everyone to do. Um, There was a report released by the CDC earlier this week on deferral or avoidance of care due to the pandemic. I know a lot of nurses were really worried about this, especially for um, patients that they knew well, that they were worried that they weren't getting treatment properly. Um, 41% of Americans delayed or avoided medical treatment, including 12% who needed emergency care, 32% who needed routine care. Um, Black and Hispanic adults um, and unpaid caregivers of adults also reported higher rates of avoiding emergency care. Um, There is, there continues to be um, disparities between the populations that are being affected and dying, um, especially with the Black and Hispanic community in Texas. That is a very large concern. Um, Part of the reason is that a lot of the quote unquote essential workers, um, you know, people that are still working, you know, retail, food service, and those industries, a lot of them are minority populations. And so um, they're just a higher risk for contracting the virus. And then um, we know that historically, there have been lower outcomes for them in the healthcare system or uh, distrust of the healthcare system. So um, all of those are barriers. And that's what's creating this huge discrepancy, um, especially if you look at the Uh, percent of deaths from COVID-19, it's definitely a higher percent than the population um, of those minorities, Black and Hispanic especially. Um, So that's something that uh, we're all keeping an eye out on. Uh, We know that we have nurses that are working on health equity. um, And so this is a very large concern in the public health space in Texas. Um, So that's on the radar as well.
1: I think the message that we need to continue to share as nurses with the general public is that our hospitals are safe and um, and it, the public should seek care in our facilities if they need it. Um, don't let COVID deter you from um, from going to the emergency room if you're having chest pain or um, you know anything that that constitutes being seen by a physician. Um, we don't want anyone to delay that care. There have been people who in the public who have passed away because they did delay that care. Um, And that's unfortunate because we're still able to provide the same level of service that um, our hospitals are still able to provide the same level of service that they always have. And um, they have put um, a lot of safety measures in place to ensure that every patient that walks to the door is safe.
0: Um, So another question is, when will elective procedures fully come back? Um, Serena, I don't know what you think. Do you have a prediction on that?
1: You know, I um, I, I don't actually have a prediction on that. I think that uh, it it depends on probably a lot of factors. You have to look at the positivity rates in in your area, um, the the number of cases, the number of hospitalizations. I think there's there are a lot of um, there are a lot of things that play into that in order to be able to make that decision. Um, I don't I think that um, our hospitals across the state are, are, are ready to, to get back to doing surgeries on a regular basis and, and not having to make those medically necessary decisions. Um, and, and so it's but there's there's a lot of things that they have to take into consideration first.
0: Um. Carl asks, have some staff quit due to fear? Um, I think anecdotally I have heard of staff who um, you know uh, maybe they had a health condition for themselves or for a family member they weren't comfortable working um, in an area where they might be exposed to the virus. Um, so that's anecdotal entirely. Um, I don't think that we have statistics on it.
1: I agree there's um, that is not something that I, I believe has been tracked. Um, you know, there are, um, there are nurses who have pre-existing conditions out there who fall into the high risk category. Uh, many organizations have been able to accommodate those individuals to ensure that they're, um, that they're not being, you know they're not working in the COVID unit or um, anything like that. Of course, you know there is no guarantees that you're not going to be exposed Covid at all, Um, and so you know those are some of the things that, as as nurses, we have to take into consideration um, as we look ahead into the future. And so, um, you you know, I I have talked to some nurses who have quit their positions. Inside a hospital because they didn't want to take that chance and they've they've gone on to do other things and and so the, those are decisions that we have to make and as, as nurses, we have an ethical responsibility to
0: ourselves as well as to our patients so um, Patricia asks for quarantine if one person in the household is exposed to a COVID positive person and therefore quarantining for 14 days. What quarantine is recommended for the other members of the household, assuming the exposed person is asymptomatic um, and the other people in the household have been exposed only secondarily? Um, The reason that you're probably having trouble finding guidance is that um, it's not really recommended unless um, you test positive that you quarantine yourself. Isolation is always a good idea. I mean, we went to visit my in-laws and we isolated 14 days beforehand, 14 days afterwards, um, just to make sure that, you know, we weren't exposing them and that when we came back, we weren't going to expose anybody else. Um, So I think isolation is um, always a good idea when you're in a situation like that. Um, But if that person is asymptomatic, they haven't had a COVID test um, that was positive, it's it's unlikely that they would pass it on to the other members of taking precautions like wearing masks in your home, um, and if that person is staying in their own room, their own bedroom, um, I would say the other members of the household um, don't really need to take too many precautions or isolate or cut themselves off entirely from going outside. Um, and the reason that there hasn't been a lot of guidance is because it really depends on your situation. Uh, we've heard from nurses who, um, actually, if you go to our website, we've published a few stories. Um, one nurse, you know, she was isolating herself, from her family because she was working with COVID-19 patients, um, so you know she followed decontamination procedures and um, coming through a separate door and all of that. And then her husband actually got exposed at work and ended up falling sick. And so they ended up um, both of the parents ended up isolating themselves. Um, so they were essentially Facetiming their like 11-year-old son to help him, um, you know, make himself dinner and go through virtual school and all of that. So. Um, We know that it's been very difficult on a lot of families and so it really just depends on your family situation, I think, as far as isolation or quarantine goes within a household and also that 14-day window when you know you've been exposed um, but you don't know you're positive yet. So I think it's really going to be depending on the case. Um, Let me see what other questions we have. Um, How often are healthcare workers tested? So this guidance has um, kind of gone back and forth. One issue is that, um, and I'm actually gonna pull up, we have a one pager that we just put up on the website um, that I'm trying to pull up right now. Um, One issue is the amount of resources that the community has. Um, That has kind of been the guiding principle. Um, Let me share this with everybody. Okay, um, you should be able to see this now. So this one pager is on our website. If you go to texasnurses.org COVID-19, there's no hyphen, it's just one word. Um, you can find this one pager and a couple of other one pagers. So um, the amount of testing, so if someone has been exposed, but they are asymptomatic, um, you can assess their risk based on these three points right here, community transmission, Contact tracing and staff shortages. Um, so if if there's minimal to no community transmission, um, if there's sufficient resources for contact tracing, and if there are no staff shortages, then um, they would recommend testing that healthcare worker. I'm sorry, I see that my screen has kind of glitched here. Um, give me one second. Okay. Um, then employers should assess the risk of the exposed healthcare worker, give them a test and apply work restrictions. But if you already have a lot of community transmission and you don't have a lot of resources for tracing, you might already have staff shortages, um, then you know, testing may or may not be feasible and work restrictions may or may not be feasible. So that person's been exposed but they are not known to be infected and you already have a staff shortage, it's really in the best interest of the community, of the other staff at the facility that that person continue to work until they get a positive test or until symptoms start. Um, And part of the reason is because uh, with the PPE on, it is fairly safe um, for nurses to interact with patients. um, If they're wearing PPE, patients have access to PPE. Um, So this one pager is on our website. Um, It's primarily for, you know, if if a healthcare worker has COVID-19, but on the back page, it does have that information on, you know, how do you do contact tracing? When should you be testing healthcare workers? Um, Serena, do you know of any specific um, employers, if they have any specific uh, policies on how often to test?
1: Um, The only thing I'm aware of right now is in our long-term care facilities, there has been a state mandate that, Long-term healthcare facilities are testing their workers at a minimum of once a week um, depending on the positivity rate in your area that may actually increase to twice per week and um, the the but the heavy focus is really on those long term care facilities uh, we that's where um, We have seen the um, largest amount of spread. Um, from employee to uh, patient, um, because all those facilities are closed, and so you, to the public, and, um, and so there they have put some very strict regimented um, guidelines out um, for those facilities to reopen, and um, they have to ha- um, not have an employee test positive for COVID for 14 days. They can't have a Um, a resident test positive for 14 days they have to have um, full staff they have to be able to provide an outdoor area um, for the residents and their family members to visit Um, there has to be a plexiglass wall in between the resident and the family members Um, and so you know they have some really tough some really tough things that they have to meet in order to open their facilities back up to family members. And, um, I mean, I can, I have a personal story related to that. I, for one, am very ready for them (laughs) to open those facilities back up so I can see my family member. Um, but I also want them to do it correctly and I want them to do it safely. So, um, so those residents aren't exposed any more than they already are. And, um, you know, the the staffing component alone can be a huge challenge for our long-term care facilities. And so um, I know they're all working hard because they too want um, family members to return back in there. They're seeing the toll that it's taking on those residents um, to be completely isolated. And so, um, you know, they've put some things in place to make that happen. Uh, Carl asked again about home health workers. Um, is it the same as long-term care? No, the focus is really on long-term care, um, and because that's the only thing that is is completely shut down to the general public, and um, is you know where where members of of those or residents of those facilities um, are shut out entirely to the outside world, and so. Um, that's, that's kind of where the priority has been, but they haven't mandated any kind of testing for any other healthcare worker that
0: I'm aware of. All right, um, we'll give it a few more minutes here and just see if there's any other questions coming in. Um, as always, continue to check our website. You can follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. We'll try to post updates as we have them. Our COVID-19 task force, um, you know, all all of our uh, nurse members on this task force are working hard to create more educational materials for nurses, more materials for the public. And so we'll be producing a couple of those coming out soon. Um, This one pager was just one of them. Uh, We've got some myths and facts about COVID coming out soon. Um, We've got some guidance for uh, parents going back to school, that type of stuff. Um, So we'll hopefully um, have more information for you in the upcoming weeks and more things that you can share with your patients, um, printable one pagers, that type of thing.
1: And, and I would also say that while COVID-19 is still very much in the, in the forefront and, and something that we are um, paying attention to and, and heavily focused on, we're also starting to shift our focus here at TNA again towards the legislative session that's coming up um you know we've got a big election year and um with the presidential campaign and you know november 3rd is is around the corner um i think that you know there's one thing that we have an obligation to do as nurses is to be engaged in in that process and if if your if your level of engagement is is just walking over to a voting booth and voting, then so be it. But uh, we uh, we have a professional responsibility as nurses to be engaged in the political process in some aspect. And it starts with voting. Um, we are um, about to launch a, a voting campaign and I'll let Kanika tell you a little bit more about that. Um, and um, we will continue to keep you informed and updated on COVID-19 as well as um, some of the the work that we'll be focusing on moving into the the 2021
0: legislative session. Um, So we are actually uh, joining forces with um, Texas nurse practitioners as well as the um, Texas League of Women Voters. um, And we are holding a voter information event. Um, And this is, it's gonna go from the basics all the way um, to the more like pertinent questions about whether um, it's safe to vote with COVID-19 happening, how does early voting work, um, what about curbside voting, what about mail-in voting, absentee voting. Um, So we're gonna cover all those questions but also the big stuff um, as far as what the last date to register is, um, how do you find your personal ballot online um, and how do you vet candidates, all of those things. And so um, even if you've been voting for you know, 50 years, you can still learn something. Um, and we've got two great panelists. Uh, the first is Jacqueline Cannell, sorry, Callinen. Um She is uh, the Bear County Elections Manager. Um, she's been overseeing uh, 754 elections in her career. Um, so she is um, such a powerhouse. Uh, She was the past president of of the Texas Association of Election Administrators. Um, So we're very lucky to have her on board. Um, We've also got Grace Chimene from the League of Women Voters of Texas. Um, She has uh, been on the board since 2014, and uh, she's also a retired pediatric nurse practitioner. Um, So we're very excited to have both of them there. Um, to help everybody understand what's going to happen during this election year. What are the special um, precautions being taken with COVID-19? And also, you know, how do you become an informed voter? Um, ANA also has a website. Uh, Serena, do you know off the top of your head, is it votenurse.org?
1: Yes, that is the website.
0: Um, Or if you just Google, actually, that's not working. But um, if you Google vote nurse and ANA, that should come up. Nursesvote.org. There it is. Okay. So, nursesvote.org. Um, it has information on the candidates, um, you know, which ones uh, have previously supported nurses, that type of information. ANA does not endorse any candidates. Um, and that was a change made pretty recently, but they no longer endorse candidates. So, you can find um, it's completely nonpartisan websites. So you can find information on the candidates and nursing priorities. Um, and also how you can get involved. Um, We want nurses to run for office. We want nurses to be involved in the election process. Um, We actually have a campaign called Nurses in Office, and that is on our website, texasnurses.org, and that will give you information on how to get the process started. So, you know, not this year, but maybe next year, the year after that. Um, We also have some great stories from nurses who have run for office, some who succeeded, some who didn't, Um, But if you read all of them, um, it's very inspiring. And the amount of change that they're able to affect in their communities is pretty breathtaking. Um, Some of these nurses, you know, nurses uh, naturally have the ability to strategize, uh, to plan, to solve problems. um, And that really lends itself well um, when you enter the political sphere. Um, And Donna Howard, who is at the state legislature, she started on a school board. Um, And so that is just one of the ways that nurses can get involved, um, especially in this year where schools are having to think about a lot of health concerns. Um, So please consider that, please visit our website, please visit nursesvote.org, get informed and register for our um, event. It is happening September 17th at 1230. um, And we hope that you'll spread the word about that. Um, It's a free event, you just have to register in advance to get the Zoom link.
1: And I think it's important to touch a little bit on why ANA um, a- a- doesn't necessarily support and endorse one candidate in particular. Um, it's, it's been our position and, um, and, and the thought that not all of our members think alike and, and have the same set of values. And therefore what what's more important is that nurses are empowered um, to participate in the voting process and to make their own decisions. Um, because that, that really is, is what it, what it's boiling down to. You should be able to, um, to vote for the candidate that you, that, that fits your agenda and that, um, aligns with your, with your values. And so, um, it's, that's the reason why we don't necessarily endorse one specific candidate because, um, we don't really necessarily think that's our place, so.
0: Any other questions on there? Yeah, one last question from Carl is if essential workers will be tested in higher frequencies. Um, I don't think that it's feasible right now, especially with um, how manufacturing has been for these testing kits. Um, I also want to caution people because these new um, at-home testing kits are coming out but uh, we've already seen, even with the, the kits where you go in and a healthcare worker, you know, um, tests you, even those are coming out with a large rate of false negatives. So um, I would caution that anyone, you know, getting a test, um, if it's a positive test, that you can probably trust that. But if it's a negative test, there's a high likelihood it's a false negative. Um, so just uh, be, be wary of the at-home tests and Um, I'm not sure that essential workers will be tested regularly um, anytime soon, uh, but that could change. All right, well thank you all for watching. Um, You can just look on our website, follow us on Facebook, we'll announce when the next um, info session will be. We're doing these less frequently now um, since there's not a huge rush of information coming out anymore. Um, And we also, if you're a member of Texas Nurses Association, We send regular updates every Tuesday in our e-newsletter, The Checkup, um, and we also do an occasional COVID-19 update newsletter. So um, just watch out in your um, mailbox for those. And you can always visit texasnurses.org, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, um, and hopefully we'll be able to answer your questions in other ways. If you have any, we still have a dedicated inbox, which is covid at texasnurses.org. Um, so please let us know if you've got questions or if you have any concerns if you want to share your story with us we'd love to put your story on our website too thank you for joining us today thank you have a good day bye